0: hello and welcome to another episode of the paddock pass podcast uh, this show is brought to us by suzuki and the all-new suzuki gsxr 1000 superbike which has just won the 2017 moto america superbike championship my name is david Emmett, and with me today is uh, stephen english how are you stephen i'm
1: very good dave much like bank holiday buses not around for a long time then on twice in a week
0: Exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, more than welcome to be on the uh, podcast again. It's good to hear from you again. Obviously, the main reason for having you on this time is to talk about World Superbikes, which um, you have become somewhat of an expert in. I would, uh, I would imagine.
1: Well, I'd like to think so and hope so, at least. But uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's been a, a good season of Superbikes, and uh, it's been a while since we had a Superbike podcast, so it'll be good to.
0: Good to have a chat about that. It's been a, well, I mean, it hasn't been a, a thrilling season, but it's been an intriguing season because there are t- two, three riders who have clearly just shown that they're better than the rest.
1: Yeah, it's 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 been a continuation of what we've seen over the last few years, just where Kawasaki and Ducati put in the money, Dave, and that's where you get the results from. But it's actually been an interesting season all the same, even if you just look at uh just the battles through the field. Obviously it's easy to look at Davis against Ray. That's the that's the heavyweight fight that we've seen through most of the last couple of years. Sykes has had some good performances. I've actually been very impressed by him in uh race twos in particular, starting from the third row of the grid. He's actually recovered quite well on a lot of occasions. Melandry's come in, he's won a race. So the big four riders have all won races. We've also had the likes of Lowe's on a podium, Vandermark's um been up there as well fighting at the front for race wins for Yamaha on a couple of occasions. I think it was at at, uh, Mizano and at Aston where he looked really competitive. Uh, Leon Haslam came in. He had a podium as well as a wild card. There's been a couple of races where even the BMWs have been quick. just No one's been able really to consistently bring that fight to the Kawasaki's and Ducati's. The biggest challenger really throughout the season has been Yamaha, but they're still a, a, a little bit of a step behind. There's been a few surprises as well, I think. If you had said to me that we'd come to you know the final quarter of the season Eugene Laverty hasn't stood on the podium and Aprilia haven't had a sniff of a podium that would have been one of the big surprises.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean uh, even during the pre-season the Aprilia seemed to have a little bit more. I think your point about the Amar is good because it looked at one point as if Michael van der Mark was going to actually uh, was actually going to win a race at Misano until uh, uh, until he's Rear tyres uh, lost all of the air in it. the The Yamaha. It seems to me that certainly this year it, it, it's been Yamaha which have made the biggest step forward. And although they're still a little way behind the uh, the the Kawasaki's and the uh, and the Ducatis, they seem to be uh, getting closer. I mean, what's what, what has changed this year for the uh, for the Yamahas?
1: Well, last year they they didn't really have any support from the factory. They had no new parts. I think through the season they got a new tank, a new seat unit, little things like that. But uh, this year, over the winter, there was definitely more Japanese engineers. You'd look into the box. There was a couple of ex-MotoGP engineers. They hired an electronics guy from Ducati. And, you know, a few different hirings like that made a big difference. But as well as that, Lowe's has made a big step forward. I think he's he seems like he's relaxed into his role, relaxed into the fact that he knows he's got speed. And now it's about trying to get the most points he can each week, each round. And, uh, through the season, I think that's been one of the key things for them. Vandermark comes in. You've got a young rider. Like Mikey is probably, if, if people were to, to pick their, their top young riders in the championship, Vandermark's 20, 23, 24 years of age. He's in his third year. He's got that level of experience. He's one of those guys you'd pick. You put him with Lowe's. It's a, it's a good rider lineup. Last year, they had a lot of injuries. I think Lowe's had a, a shoulder. Um, and a couple of other injuries. Uh, and then there was the big crash in Aragon whenever he came back for, for as well. So he had a lot of injuries. Gintoli had a terrible crash in Imola that, uh, left him with, uh, you know, a lot of injuries, ruled him out for half a season. So you know, there were a lot of challenges last year. That this year they're not really being an issue.
0: I certainly remember talking to um, uh, talking to Alex Lowe and, and Lowe saying that he had learned a lot in his uh, wildcard efforts in World Superbikes that had made a big difference. Uh, or sorry, his wildcard efforts in, in MotoGP uh, riding the MotoGP bike, he learned a lot about a lot more about what the uh, what the Yamaha needed because the DNA of the R1 is it comes straight from the comes straight from the M1, and so um, he had to be a little bit more patient. And um, uh, try not to push the bike so hard and it's actually sort of boosted his speed uh, van der mark also seems to have sort of uh, certainly this year sort of calmed down a little bit grown into uh, grown into being into riding the uh, into riding the Amar, trying to figure out how to uh, how to do it, and and as and as Shan sort of real pace, like I say, uh, Misano, both MR riders looked look uh, looked really really strong, uh, but they were unfortunate not to get the result out of it. Uh, so um, uh, yeah, I mean, it, uh, agreed, it's it's certainly been interesting further back in the field rather than uh, you know just the just the Ray versus Davis. Yeah, and I think when
1: you look at uh, what we've seen from MV and Leon Camier as well, it's a similar story. Camille, especially over the last couple of rounds he's really been able to up his game and uh, i think everyone knows how talented leon is but it's good to see mv have made those steps as well so if they get a bit more competitive for next year yamaha makes another step honda aren't going to be honda are terrible at the minute but they're not going to be that bad going forward they should be able to make a lot of improvement aprilia will definitely make a step if you look back to winter testing myself and Neil were down at the Jerez test, and uh, Aprilia looked a little bit, uh, a little bit lost at Jerez but found something at Portimao. Next round of the championship is Portimao, so it'd be interesting to see if if the bike still works well in Portimao, considering all the changes they've made to it over the season. But uh, you know, I would imagine for next year, Ducati and Kawasaki are still going to be at the front, but that gap between them and the rest should be a lot closer, and that's what we need to see. We don't need to see Ducati and Kawasaki peg back. We need to see everyone else move forward.
0: Oh, yeah, but I mean, how do you do that? Because it seems like uh, the, the MotoGP method where basically... Uh, you restrict testing for the successful factories, and you allow more testing for the for the unsuccessful uh, uh, factories. Give them a chance to, uh, to catch up. Give them more engines. Um, uh, give them uh, allow them to actually sort of develop engines and, and and that sort of thing. That seems to have worked quite well in MotoGP. Are there are there any moves in World Superbikes to do the same thing?
1: Well, there was talk of concessions. You had a couple of stories on the website, David, about concessions and what could happen. And a lot of people, when you talk to them inside the paddock, it's a great idea except for the fact that uh, if you talk to Leon about what would happen if you had more testing with MV, as he said, nothing would happen because we wouldn't have new parts. Yeah. You know, and that's what the issue is. It's about resources. It's about getting the factories to actually place an importance in the championship, put money into it. Now, the key thing is going to be like for me looking at it, like obviously I was in MotoGP for a long time, still go to the paddock every now and then talk to everyone on a regular basis. But for me looking at MotoGP, it wasn't a spec ecu it wasn't michelin tires it wasn't concessions it wasn't anything specific that made moto gp great right now it was all those things coming at the same time if we had had just a spec ecu we wouldn't have had the rate we wouldn't have had that amount of winners last year if we had had just new michelin's we wouldn't have had this amount of winners over the last 18 months it was all those things coming together as well as factories all putting in an awful lot of 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 investment into the championship That's what superbike needs. It needs a confluence of circumstances to come together for it all to be what MotoGP has right now. I personally think that um, rule stability helps because suddenly Kawasaki. There's only you can only get to a certain point. You can't suddenly reinvent the wheel. So you can only develop a bike to a certain level. And if we keep the same kind of regulations, the other manufacturers are then able to get closer towards that apex. Kawasaki and Ducati can't keep pushing. That ceiling higher and higher because you just get to a point of of diminishing returns.
0: Yeah, absolutely, completely agree about uh, about rule stability. Rule stability is one of the most important things there. But uh, I also remember because I, you know, like I've been in MotoGP for uh, for nearly ten years now, and uh, I remember the outrage when the CRT uh, teams were announced. But then I was going back looking at two thousand and ten, looking at the grids and seeing people, you know, basically. 15 finishes and 15 starters and there was a lot of outrage when crt was uh, uh was racing there was uh, a lot of outrage when they announced the spec ecu and the limit on the number of uh, engines but over a period of years you know it has led to where we are now and it took three four years for it to actually work out and that's what that's what world super needs
1: yeah and it's it's like what you always hear david that winning covers up an awful lot of issues for a rider and great racing it's a good deodorant to clear up any of the any of the bad smells around a paddock because it does focus everyone like you look at what happened at silverstone we had a great race because there was loads of different manufacturers that were really competitive and we had you know close racing and that's you know it it got to a point where we'd gone from as you said 15 16 bikes on a grid to suddenly CRT was an option, that no, no no one supported the CRT option, everyone looked at it and thought this isn't what MotoGP is all about but it was a stepping stone, suddenly it went from the CRTs to the open bikes and then that morphed into what we have now and it's just maybe for superbikes it needs those little stepping stones but MotoGP didn't suddenly turn on its head and go from 16 on a grid to what we have now, just like superbikes it's, it's a process and it's going to take time.
0: Yeah, exactly. And as you say, the most important thing is to bring the level of the other factories up, and that's, uh, uh, that's difficult. But it's, but it's also it's difficult to persuade factories to actually um, invest in racing, and especially small factories like MV, who are a, a niche mark who make amazing motorcycles, but they only sell, you know, a few thousand, and they're never going to be lush with the kind of cash that you need to be spending uh, to to win.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's also worth remembering as well that, you know, for all that we've seen from Kawasaki and Ducati, there's a lot to be said for having a Johnny Ray on your bike. There's a lot to be said for having a Chaz Davis on your bike. There are two riders that are right up at the top of their confidence wave. They're up against Marco Melandri and Tom Sykes. Marco is shown consistently he's one of the best riders in the world. Sykes has shown he's one of the best superbike riders in the world. And their teammates are consistently able to beat them because they're more confident. They've just got that They've got that feel. And yeah. that's what makes the big difference and then I think when you look at superbikes as a whole, as well, it's an unfortunate thing to say, but the loss of Nicky hurts it an awful lot as well. Because suddenly, for a lot of people that had someone to look at in that midfield battle, they don't. So they're not really focusing on that. They're just seeing the gap between you know fourth and fifth. Whereas whenever you had you know Nicky on the Honda, he was able to win races last year, be on the podium. You know it, it because there was a big name. It, it did help just for people to look at that midfield battle in a slightly different way.
0: Yeah, fans love riders, and uh, Nicky was one of the biggest, biggest names, one of the most uh, best loved riders. Uh, and his loss is, it, I mean, it, it's not just a loss for superbikes; it's also a loss for, um, uh, especially for Honda, I think, because he did so much uh, of the development work on that bike. And Stefan Bradl has come in, and he's just really not adapted at all to, well, either the World Superbike paddock or or the tyres or something. It's just that it, there is just something terribly off there. Um, and now they're stuck with uh, you know Bradle and trying to find someone else to replace him
1: yeah and the thing for and it brings us nicely to the next thing we can really talk about with Superbikes David we're just where we look at the silly season for next year and for Bradle his his date to be retained by Honda has long passed but it does look like basically with pressure from Red Bull that uh, bradl has been able to come to a negotiating table and basically say this is what I want for next year he wanted technical shakeups, where basically a change of crew chiefs, his crew chief to be a technical director, overlooking the whole team and different things like that. And he's made those demands. And it's basically been a case of either you accept these or Red Bull walks away. And it looks like Kate, maybe even as soon as the next round in Portimao could have quite a shake-up inside their technical department. But uh, I, I did uh, talk to the team just to try and just get clarification on whether that's happened and, I was swiftly given a, a no comment on it, but it does look like uh Tenkade for next year will be quite different because the one thing that uh you know you can see snazzy looking trucks, the bikes look good, the garage looks great, but there's not a lot of people in that box. And yeah. that was the one complaint that Nikki had. It was the one complaint that Stefan's had all year. And really, they need to have more people. If they have more people, they can do more. Tenkade have shown that they can develop a bike, but they need to in all likelihood, move away from the Cosworth Electronics. They need to go to the Magneti Morelli and they need to just add people to it. And if they want to keep Red Bull, if they want to actually be a contender, that's what they're going to have to do.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, in the end, it's exactly what you see in any racing series. It's it's people that make the difference. I mean, you... Uh, your uh, data logging systems can uh, gather all of this data Uh, the sensors are cheap and the systems are cheap Uh, but in the end uh, all this data doesn't mean a hill of beans if you can't actually understand what's going on and use the data to actually increase performance and uh, maximize the performance of the bike that you've got
1: yeah when we were kids david we were always obviously everyone's grown up with the whole early to bed and early to rise and uh, you'll get your success but I remember like my granddad always said early to ber- bed and early to rise it's not worth a damn if you don't advertise and for <laughs> Honda in World SBK at the minute they can have all that data as you said but if they don't have people that can actually implement it it's pointless and yeah, that's yeah. what their issue is it's, it's people if they can build that infrastructure Bradle's a good rider he's shown that he can win a world championship he's had a podium in Grand Prix uh, even at Aprilia he showed he could do well last year as well he's a good rider they need and in all likelihood they're going to have leon camier on the other bike next year as well that'll be a good rider lineup for them and now they, they need to make that next step with the rest of their infrastructure in place over the last few years david nicky hayden michael van Stefan mark you know they're they're good riders that they've had and they haven't had the results
0: yeah, exactly. So you think you think Camier? We're we'll likely to see Camier on that second bike because because filling that second bike is going to be a really really big question for for, for Tenkata next year.
1: Camier is the one that makes the most sense, but I could I could see Leon decide that you know what Honda's not very competitive. MV is a more competitive proposition. Maybe I stay with MV, but Honda's always been willing to open the paycheck, and that could that could be the key thing if they can bring in Camier. He's shown he can develop a bike. He's shown what he can do in, in world SBK as well. And that could be a good good move for him. It also opens up those opportunities for the next stage of Camier's career where, you know, ambassadorial roles with Honda UK and different things like that. Like Leon's at that age where that does start to become a consideration.
0: Yeah. Uh, yes. 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 Exactly. At some point, you start. You're not necessarily thinking about uh, retirement, but you're aware that at some point retirement will happen. And then it's good to actually forge strong links with uh, uh, strong links with 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 manufacturers. Um, so what happens if uh, if Leon does uh, uh, jump over to uh, uh, to to Honda? Who takes uh, Who takes his bike? Well, there's a who lot of talk MV? that
1: Envy will expand to a two bike team. That's been rumored on and off for the last couple of years pj jacobson makes a lot of sense he's of course racing for them in the supersport championship and uh, jacobson he's got big bike experience from the suzuka eight hours from british Superbikes, stock thousand championships and uh, pj is very interested in getting back onto a big bike his riding style would suit a big bike as well you'd also have someone like jules cluzel of course cluzel did race the suzuki a few years ago he raced for mv in super sport the last couple of years so he could be in play for that but uh, it does a lot of it will just hinge on if leon moves then it just becomes reactive from mv rather than where they can really be proactive and go out and try and sign a, a top rider but the mv is a good package now you know it's not like it was three years ago where it was a great sounding bike that you could admire for a long time as it went past you now it's actually it is a frontline bike and camera's been able to Get a lot of strong top five, top six finishes on it.
0: Would um, expanding the lineup, expanding to two bikes, does that make a lot of difference? Does that does that re- would that make a a big enough step forward in uh, um in comp in competitiveness, or would the money be better spent just on actually developing the bike?
1: Well, up to now, it didn't make sense to go to two bikes. If you remember back to the start of the last year, Marco Melandri was actually signed up to be a test rider and. Camier rightly said, you know what guys, we don't need a test rider, we just need to focus on just getting this bike to work for me and we can we can just work on that and get to a certain level. They've got to that level and now having two bikes would help, you'd have to imagine as long as they can afford it. Like the team itself, it's not actually a factory team, it's a, an independent team that has you know some links to the factory, but it's not like it was 3 years ago, 2 years ago where the factory paid for everything. Most of it is independent now, so they have a bit more freedom compared to what they were able to do in the past. But I I wouldn't be surprised to see them go to two bikes
0: uh the other big question or the other big name we've heard is uh leon haslam the other leon there's been a lot of talk about him coming back to world Superbikes. he had a really strong ride when he was a replacement ride on the Pocchetti, uh kawasaki there is talk of him you know considering a ride on the pochetti kawasaki for, like, for next year what's the chances we see leon haslam in there
1: i think it's slim to nil now but it, it was a real possibility even up until a couple of weeks ago. I think for uh, Haslam, of course, he came onto the Pedercini bike in Qatar last year, had some top fives despite just a terrible weekend where he lost pretty much all of Friday. Uh, He had a podium this year at Donington on the Pichetti, but it looks like they haven't really been able to come to the right agreement where he's willing to move away from the UK But what is interesting is that Sylvain Gintotti is very much in play for that Pachetti bike for next year.
0: Yeah, because Wintourley doesn't really seem to have um, settled in BSB at all. Um, and he was—he actually had a—he had a pretty decent outing when he uh, replaced Alex Rins on the uh, on the Suzuki MotoGP. Uh, obviously, he's a an accomplished superbike rider with a decent uh, with a fairly decent record, uh, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah, like uh, the last time that he was in superbikes, obviously, it was last year. He had a podium on the Yamaha. He won the championship in 2014 on the Aprilia. He's got lots of experience on different bikes. As you mentioned there, David, Suzuki trusted them enough to put them on the MotoGP bike. They put them on the Yoshi bike at the Suzuki 8 hours. And there is a lot of talk that uh, Go11 could actually run a Suzuki next year. I was talking to the team boss during the week, actually, just to just to sort of touch base and see whether or not it was actually legitimate that they were talking to Suzuki. And the team has had conversations with Suzuki about next year. That would be just to run a customer outfit similar to what we saw probably from Yamaha last year with the Crescent team but uh, it'd be interesting to see if they did end up going with Suzuki if uh, they'd be able to poach Gintoli otherwise that Pachetti bike is very attractive for Gintoli and it would be good for Pachetti as well it's someone that uh, they can then have top Rack on one side of
0: the box and he can learn from a former champion Absolutely it's a solid uh, set up and Toprack I mean Toprack really seems to have a lot of potential he's been uh, he's been fairly impressive so far
1: Yeah he's uh, <laughs> i tell you what like, there's not too many riders that are wilder. Then top rack out on track. He's backing in <laughs> that stock though, like uh, like a Moto Two bike, really. And um, I think it'd be good to see him get the chance on the Superbike because Keenan Safoglu, who looks after him as his mentor, he doesn't want top rack to go down the same road that Keenan went down, which basically has limited Keenan just to be a six hundred rider. He wants top rack to get onto big bikes as quickly as possible and onto a Superbike as quickly as possible, and that looks almost certain to be next year on the on the pichetti
0: what's interesting is that there seems to be a, a, a sudden glut of really really fast turkish riders because top rack's coming up obviously software is still on the top of his game and uh, we have the Onchu brothers in um uh, in the red bull rookies and uh, asia talent cup who just seem to be able uh, capable of wear, winning everything so it's it's, it's uh, it, it, an interesting development.
1: Yeah, it's like anything else. Racing is cyclical, and um, whenever you find one rider from a country, you tend to find, well, maybe there's someone else over there that we can look at. Keenan, of course, obviously, looks after and helps an awful lot of these riders. He does the exact same thing as what Valentino does over in Italy with his VR 46 riders. You've got Keenan and his and his Turkish group of riders, like he's been involved with the Ansu brothers from the start as well, and I have to say. When I saw them in the Asia Talent Cup last year and this year, they've been really impressive. And uh, just to see what they've been able to do in the Red Bull rookies too, they've shown that there is that uh, progression of talent in Turkey. And that's where you could have Keenan at the very top where he's winning the super sport championships, then you have Top Rack that's just been able to progress nicely through all the steps, and then the next group of riders behind that as well. So it's good for uh, it's good for Turkey to be able to see that it's not just about Keenan.
0: Right, well, um, we shall take a quick break, and then we shall come back and talk about the possibility of some new and exciting bikes on the world Superbike Grid for 2018. This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Suzuki and the all-new Suzuki GSXR1000. Featuring MotoGP-derived technology, the new GSX-R1000 has variable valve timing for optimal peak horsepower without sacrificing any low-end or mid-range torque. The new GSX-R1000 also features advanced electronics, such as an inertial measurement unit, adjustable power output via the ride-by-wire, Suzuki traction control, and a twin-spar aluminum frame that is 10% lighter and more compact than the previous model. The new Suzuki GSX-R1000 also has aerodynamic bodywork that is both sleek and stylish. Be sure to check out the all-new 2017 Suzuki GSX-R1000 at a racetrack or Suzuki dealership near you. Right. Well, I shall be off to Misano next week, where before the MotoGP. But one of the events which I'm really quite looking forward to is Ducati will finally be presenting their V4 engine, which has been uh, rumored for a while. It looks like the bike is actually the bike itself will be presented at the EICMA in Milan in November. Uh, but uh, going to be listening, looking forward to actually hearing the hearing the engine and seeing the engine hearing it run. Um, now, normally what uh, Ducati do is run the bike in Stock 1000 first. Um, have you heard anything about what they're about Ducati's plans for this V4? Well, we,
1: all that we've really heard is that there will be a V4, that uh, Ducati will bring it in in the 2019 season. Next year will be the last year of the Panigale. But uh, just what that development path is going to be, that's going to be the, the million-dollar question between now and uh, next season. Will they bring in something into uh, Stockton once the bike's released, or will they go straight into a World SBK spec machine? I'm uh, I'm quite jealous of you, Dave, actually being at Mizano just to be able to see what that bike, see what that engine's going to look like, how it's going to sound, and uh, see what the the prospects are for it. But uh, it's going to be interesting to see what Ducati do because it took them a long time to make the Panigale competitive. It took them a long time to make the 1099 competitive as well. So uh you know it's going to it's going to be a process for them and I think we've seen how competitive Ducati can be right now but I think they could take a step back once they bring out this new bike so next year could well be their their real chance to win a championship
0: to me, the more intriguing prospect is perhaps long term. If this, uh, because it's easier to make a V four uh, competitive to make it fast than it is to make a you know a V twin uh, competitive with a uh, thousand cc fours. Uh, even though you know, Chance Davies is showing that it's perfectly possible to do it. Just it took it took them a little while. Um, but uh, I have half an i an idea that uh, perhaps we'll see some core, sort of you know return to the early years of this century. You know, the thousands and the and the, the late nineties. Where you had lots and lots of um, uh, customer Ducatis on the grid, um, all of which were capable of being uh, competitive. And if this V4 is any good, then it would make an awful lot of uh, sense for customer bikes to, or for for, for for private teams, to you know buy themselves a V4 and see what they can see what they can make uh, make of it. So I am I'm really hoping that they do put this uh, uh, put this into Superstock next year, so we can actually see um, see what it's worth
1: yeah and it'd be great just to see something new on the grid as well give us all something to talk about it'd be good to see as you said Dave just get back to that point where you do have a lot of those customer bikes on the grid because right now if you want to have a competitive customer bike you just buy yourself a Kawasaki yeah that's why you're able to see Pachetti and Pedercini and different teams like that have strong results even whenever you know you wouldn't look at them as being ultimate top line teams they can have good results because they've got a kawasaki you want to get back to the point where there's variety in those customer teams as well as there being you know seven factory teams we want to see it where you know instead of teams going out and just picking up the kawasaki they look at that ducati they look at uh, bmw and different things like that you want it to be more back towards that ethos of of world sbk in the future
0: yeah, I mean, we talk about the V4 coming, but uh, also, as you mentioned earlier, the Suzuki, uh, the Suzuki GS6000R, um, that has been uh, raced in BSB. Um, uh, BSB, IDM, and Moto America. Uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, especially in Moto, Moto America has been extremely competitive, uh, arguably the best bike on that grid at the moment. What's the chances that we see Suzuki come back with a serious effort in world superbikes?
1: Well, define Suzuki coming back because <laughs> the key question is going to be, I talked to Yoshimura whenever I was over at Suzuki and they said they do not want to have a world SBK effort again. They don't want to go down that route. It's not of value for them to do it. So they need to find a team willing to to run that bike. Now, there was a lot of talk that the Altea team could drop BMWs and go to Suzuki. That would make a lot of sense. That's a team that you know has had a lot of success, has shown that they can put together a good package They've got uh, you know good hospitality, a good looking garage, decent spot sponsors. They have got Jordi Torres is a good rider, so it ticks all those boxes. But it hasn't happened yet. So is it going to happen in time for next year? Probably not. The IDM team that's running the Suzuki, they've said if they can get a good sponsor, they'll move to World SBK. There's a piece that I think it was Evo wrote it on Speedweek where it basically just says it out: if we get a good sponsor, we're in World SBK next year. Then you've also got this rumor about Go 11 going to Suzuki. So you've got lots of things in play, but nothing concrete just yet. Personally, I think that, I, I think there's no way that you can't have Suzuki with this new bike not in world superbikes in the next 18 months. Because how do you sell one of these bikes? You sell it through winning a superbike championship. You sell it by winning a senior TT. They've done that with Michael Dunlop. They need to win the Motor America Championship this year and then they need to move over to uh to Worlds. The bike is by all accounts an absolutely cracking bike. You talked to Tony Elias, you talked to Roger Hayden about it. Both of them raved about the bike and, and the step that it made compared to last year's bike. You know, they know that this bike can be competitive. They need to just get it on a world SBK grid. Yeah,
0: I mean, I spoke to um, Silvan Quintili at, at Barcelona about the bike, and he said, uh, you know, comparing it to the MotoGP bike, and said it was very much, it, you you could really feel that it's, it had the same DNA as the uh, as the MotoGP bike. So there is clearly uh, some kind of link there, and with the superbike production bike market becoming more and more of a niche um an niche product if you like a very specialist product i think that has got to be increasing the value of motor or of uh, of well superbikes uh, just because it really is the showcase for where these bikes can actually be shown to the best of their ability and um really really showcased the buyers of superbikes especially the 1000 cc superbikes are much more track focused you see it in all of the all of the bikes which are actually being built uh, they're much more specialist machines than they were maybe 15 years ago. Um, 15 years ago, there were still lots and lots of 1,000cc sports bikes on the road and now um, there seems to be far fewer and the ones which there are are really being used on track days.
1: Yeah, and in fairness, Dave, me and you are prime examples of everything that's wrong with the the trends of sales now. (laughs) I've got a little... 250A2 bike, and you've got yourself a GS. So we're <laughs> we're completely away from what we need. We, I've got a bike for spinning around town. You've got a bike for spinning around countryside. So yes. you know it's it's that thing of what people are buying now is dictating where people are going with the sports bike market. And you know, unfortunately, we've got we've got some incredible bikes out there right now, but they're just not being sold in yeah. the in the volumes that need to be sold. And that's where for the likes of Suzuki to come across. They can, if they can find the right team to do this with, where it doesn't need to have a huge amount of factory investment, where it's supported by Yoshi, it, it works, it works well. Cause that bike, I'll tell you what, at the eight hours in Suzuka, that bike was the most beautiful looking bike on the grid and it was fast. That bike can be very competitive in world SBK, just like the Or 1, just like the Fireblade. They showed in Suzuka that you can make those bikes really quick and competitive in superbike trim. It's just about whether or not it's it makes the sense to have that factory investment maybe right now it doesn't make that sense for suzuki but it definitely makes sense for them to be there
0: so what is the difference with the with with the suzuka rules with the with the rules being run there i mean uh, how come they the, those bikes really are much better because whenever you speak to i mean certainly um uh, speaking to bradley smith about the difference between the uh, the the suzuka bike and the uh endurance bike that you that he rode the wsb spec uh, that he rode i think he rode austria. it around uh, uh, uh oh yeah but also he rode it he, i think he, t- he tested a similar bike at uh, austria as well and um uh, he uh, basically said it was good you know night and day just just night and day difference the uh the electronics especially there was a big big difference in the electronics um is that where the uh, where the difference is being made between these bikes
1: To a large extent, yeah, it's mostly the electronics. It's pretty much, if you look at the Yamaha, it's pretty much a full MotoGP spec electronics package, not the current unified MotoGP electronics, but the previous generation. So that's obviously hugely important for how the bike feels. But also when you look at the bikes, uh, there are some big differences. Like uh, I think the Fireblade is probably the easiest one to look at and see the differences. There's different exhaust, different swing arm. I was talking to a couple of engineers and they said that everything from the geometry of the the bike is different. They've got different uh shocks, you know, everything like that like was was different with the Fireblade compared to what was run in the World SBK spec when you look at the Yamaha it's electronics and then just just lots of different things like uh, when Bradle jumped onto the Honda he said that immediately it looked like a MotoGP GP bike just in terms of the handlebar position, the the dash, all those things felt like a MotoGP bike, whereas when he's on the Superbike, doesn't. You know, so there's all, it's just the, the, the rules are slightly more open at Suzuka, not wildly, but it just means that it's more applicable to spending the money, and that's pretty much all it comes down to. They're spending money on the Suzuka bikes, whereas in the World SBK bikes, they're not spending the same amount, and it's like anything else. If you spend the money, you can find those little tents. There was, um, there, was one, there was one part of it, uh, I think it's the fuel light on the R1 at Suzuka. Basically, it stands out like a sore thumb. And uh, Paul Spagaro said that, because uh, he noticed it whenever he was at, uh, I think it was at a media function in Tokyo, and he turned to the other riders last year and he said, uh, where's, the, where's the fuel light? Do you notice that we don't have the fuel light? And it was just because it looked ugly <laughs> that they wouldn't bring it to the demo for the media. <laughs> so they put this on once they went once they go to the track. And it's it's that little attention to detail that makes the difference. Like, I think um I did a piece for you at Suzuka, David, just where there was a lot of different photos of the Yamaha and the Honda. And you were able to look at it and you were able just to it just it just looked more MotoGP than World SBK. And it was all just tiny, subtle differences
0: yeah i mean it, it seems to me that it's it, it, a lot of it is about the uh, sort of the media profile in a particular market obviously the suzuka eight hour is massive for the japanese factories for their home market it's, it's it's such a an important race mainly for their home market um and world Superbikes doesn't have that same media profile certainly not in in japan you know it's spread over a much uh, uh, it's spread much more thinly over a much larger geographical area
1: yeah and I think that was for me one of the big surprises because like I always wanted to get to get to Suzuka like we've talked about it in the past David about how great it would be to go to that race and it lived up to all of my expectations just because it still is one of the biggest races of the year when you go there the grandstands are full you've got all of the the key people we were talking to Carmine that used to work with uh, Bridgestone myself and Neil were talking to him just when Aaron Slight, the former superbike rider was in the in the paddock at the British Grand Prix. And Carmine was talking about how, you know, the, the head of Bridgestone, the head of HRC, all these people, they might go to every day of the Motegi Grand Prix, but they were certainly at every day of the Suzuka eight hours. Mm-hmm. And it was just that little subtle difference between, yeah, it makes sense to be here at Motegi for four days versus I've got no choice. I have to be here at yeah. Suzuka for every day. And that's, you know, that's one of those, you know, little differences. But all those little things all add up, and that's why Suzuka is still so important. That's why there's still such a big factory level of investment from you know the likes of of Yamaha and uh, Honda in that race. It's also interesting that Kawasaki don't put in quite as much effort at Suzuka as they do in in Worlds.
0: Uh, yeah, exactly, because it does seem like the you know uh, basically World Superbikes is Kawasaki's factory effort um, for. Uh, in racing basically and it, you know the reason they won't go back to MotoGP gp is because they 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 spend uh, a lot less money and uh, get a lot more success in in world superbikes and they have one of the best riders in the world
1: yeah and that's the thing you know i think it's easy for everyone to look at kawasaki and criticize their approach but no one criticized ducati for that approach in the 90s you know they weren't in MotoGP gp and everyone just sort of looked at it and said oh no that's fine you know maybe it was because you know it was it was still the two-stroke era or whatever the reasons were but all those other manufacturers had their foot in both camps but uh, for whatever reason Ducati were always able to get away with not being in Grand Prix's Kawasaki seemed to be just pillared for not being in Grand Prix's at the minute and you know when you talk to fans when you talk to even the media when you talk to people outside the paddock people criticize Kawasaki whereas they're just doing exactly what Ducati did 10, 15 years ago, and having the same success that Ducati had during that, that Fogarty era.
0: Uh, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. And I, perhaps the difference is also that I mean, in the '90s, you know, World Superbikes was at least as big and probably bigger than Grand Prix racing. There would be more people at a um, World Superbike round than there would be at a five hundred a um, uh, five hundred round. Certainly, even speaking for myself, I mean, you know, I'm MotoGP thrown through. But during that period, I used to enjoy watching World Superbikes a lot more than uh, watching do and just destroy the competition. Even though I love the two strokes.
1: Yeah, and it, it could well have been the case that, uh, you know, Superbikes was bigger, but Doom was still earning a hell of a lot more money than Parky was. <laughs> you know, and, and I think that, like, it's easy to look back and think about how big World Superbikes was back then, but it can get back to that point again. Uh, I think the biggest issue is that it keeps getting compared to this golden era of Grand Prix racing that we have right now. Yeah. I think yeah. if you were to look at, uh you know, if if we were still having racing like we had at the end of the 800 era, world superbikes wouldn't be criticized as badly as it is right now i think it's i think it's important just to realize this is as good as any of us have ever seen it in grand prix racing we should enjoy that for what it is but we shouldn't i wouldn't say punish but we shouldn't look negatively at other championships that aren't offering that same level of racing it's the same as whenever you compare moto gp to formula one there were years where formula one was more exciting than moto gp But now MotoGP is miles ahead of F1. You know, it it swings in roundabouts and it comes and goes.
0: Yeah, exactly. And actually holding on to that is extremely difficult because there are so many different factors which are outside of the control of uh, the series or organizers. Almost, I mean, like, in you know, Dawna have done an incredible job of making MotoGP, uh, you know, a level playing field and exciting for, uh, for, for lots of reasons. Uh, so if they can find a way to apply that same sort of formula within World Superbikes or find a formula which actually fits the ethos of World Superbikes, um, then there should be a decent future for World Supers as well.
1: Yeah, and I think that's that's the real thing, David. It's about finding something that suits superbikes instead of just jumping in with what MotoGP does. You yeah. know, and I think that uh you know there was if you look at uh the aftermath of Germany in particular, I know like uh Greg Haynes, he commented about how popular it was in Germany and you know, we need to just focus on you know what's good about superbikes. And there was a lot of negative reaction towards Greg yeah. and that tweet. And I think it's important that, you know, People realize that they're two different championships. And I thought it was really positive at Silverstone where, you know, Johnny Ray turned up at Silverstone and everyone was interested in what Johnny had to say. Like we had a, we had a round table where there was, I think, 15 journalists from, you know, eight or nine different countries that all turned up just to hear what Johnny had to say. And that's really positive because it showed on race day, you know, an hour before the Model 3 race, all these people wanted to see what was happening in World Superbikes. And it's easy to forget that. Just because you know a lot of these people can't get to a World Superbike race, you know. You look at uh, there were people there, like from as I said, lots of different countries, all represented, all interested, but they can't get to every race, so they have to pick and choose. MotoGP takes preference because that's the bigger championship, you know. But it was interesting just to see the level of of interest that there was in in World Superbikes as well at the Grand Prix.
0: The other problem with the Lausitz ring uh, round us, especially just the Lausitz ring. I mean, I've got how many people it, it, it sort of seats there, but it remind, reminded me a lot of Indianapolis. They talked a lot about how, you know, how the grandstands looked completely empty at Indianapolis. But Indianapolis, when they run the Indy 500, they have, what, 400, 500,000 people there. And so uh, even when you have sort of, because uh, they, uh, they would have crowds of 70,000 people at Indy, but it looked absolutely terrible. Because first of all, no one wanted to sit on the grandstand because it was the worst place to actually uh, sit and experience MOGP. Uh, and secondly, you, you could you could you know house a small nation in those grandstands, and unless you really do have a couple of hundred thousand people, nobody is uh, it's, it's always going to look terrible.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing. Like I grew up watching the Indy Five Hundred, and that whole that whole track is just engulfed by 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 seats and everyone sitting there. And as you said, there's 400,000 people can turn up there for the Indy 500. When Formula One went there, it was 160,000 people were there and it looked empty. When we went there for Grand Prix, it was 90,000, 100,000 people. And again, it looks very sparse. Uh, MXGP is at Daytona this weekend. I was at Daytona for the 500 one year. That grandstand can host I think it's 160,000 people. Yeah. And it was absolutely packed for every night of NASCAR. I went back three weeks later for the Daytona two hundred. There was no one in it. You know, it's it's it it does just create that appearance of of levels of interest and you know what looks good on TV. And uh, you know, whenever you see empty stands, it doesn't look good on TV. And it does it it gives an easy stick to beat the championship with.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because if you think about Imola, for example, I mean, like Imola looks really, really well attended. There was, you know, plenty of people around the track, plenty of people in the in, in the grandstands. They have much, much smaller grandstands. And so it looks, uh, you know, it, it just looks a lot better.
1: Yeah, well, when we go to Phillip Island, it's not a Grand Prix crowd. It's definitely not a, a Casey Stoner-sized uh, Phillip Island Grand Prix crowd. But there's 60,000 people there over the race weekend. When we go to Thailand and MotoGP will go to Thailand next year. You know, there that that grandstand is full. The atmosphere is great. When we go to both the Italian rounds at Misano and Emilia Magni Cor, um, you know, there's lots of races. Assen, Assen was very busy this year. That whole section from the GT chicane yep. all the way down to the newsstands into turn one that was all full. There was traffic on the way in. You know, it was like you were at a Grand Prix. It wasn't like it was. I remember David, you went in twenty twelve, twenty thirteen. And it was very empty. Yes. Van der Mark comes in. He wins a Supersport Championship. He's on a on a World SBK bike. Suddenly, the Dutch crowd is there. Aston's a big round again. There's only a couple of rounds that are quite quiet. Qatar, that's quiet for Grand Prix. Horeth is quite quiet for a Superbike round. But other than that, most of the
0: rounds, they're pretty busy. World Superbikes has has the problem that MotoGP has, in that um uh, certainly had in that MotoGP was all Spaniards. Uh, World Superbikes is all British riders, but uh, you know you add a another nationality to the uh, to the mix, and all of a sudden it increases the increases the popularity. Because I mean, yeah, obviously living in Holland, I have lots and lots of Dutch uh, sort of followers and Dutch friends, and uh, the, they have a big interest in uh, in MotoGP or in in World Superbikes because of Michael Van mark They follow him all the time. I think. I've had ever since Valentina Rossi broke his leg. I've had about uh, uh, at least fifty people ask me. So, are they going to put Michael on the uh, on the bike? So, yeah, it, it really makes it makes a big difference. If they I'm surprised that they didn't think Jasper Stappen would get the right bit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's that thing of it's the national identity is is really important for riders, and that's why you'd have to imagine Dorna don't want to have you know, a top British rider jump yeah. onto a bike. I'd say they were quite relieved when Sam Lowe said, I'm going back to Moto 2 instead of looking to go to World Superbikes. You know, they want to have you know, Hector Barber looks like he's gonna stay in Moto 2 for next year. He's gonna go back to Moto 2. They would have loved to have had Hector Barber move across. Yeah. Hector's a fast Grand Prix rider that has shown that he's never gonna be a world champion in, in Moto GP, but if he went to World Superbikes, he could be quite competitive. Tito Rabat is a perfect example of a rider that I'd love to see in World Superbikes because you could put Tito out in Almeria, give him a Fireblade, give him a load of Pirelli tires, and just let him ride till his heart's content. And Tito has shown that when he's able to do that, he can win races, he can be a title contender, he can be genuinely a quick rider. He's never going to get that opportunity in MotoGP. He, he I, I think it would have been good to see him move over to Superbikes. That would have left you with the likes of Jordi Torres, Javi Farez, Tito Rabat as three fast Spaniards and Superbikes. Then you look to have another couple of Italians. You've got Marco Malandri already there. You've got Federico Caracassudo showing what he can do in Supersports. Yeah. He'll move up to a Superbike at some point. You know, you get to a stage very quickly where you can have those riders. Like, we did have Braddel and Ryderberger at the start of this year, two good German riders. You know, it's just, it's all about just trying to give give people that identity. Obviously, America were spoiled with Nikki Hayden, but they've still got P.J. Jacobson. They've still got good riders. If Cameron Beaubier ever decides to move across, there's another. You know, like there's good, talented riders that fans can identify with, and that's what you need in any championship.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, certainly been interesting because from speaking to sort of American journalists, then they think that Cameron Bobier is pretty much set in uh, in the U.S. Uh, but there's uh, riders like uh, Gagne, Jake Gagne, J.D. Beach. Um uh they are sort of stuck basically stuck in that uh, backed up Behind Bobier and uh, Roger Hayden on the um, on the two factory uh, bikes, which are uh, which are available in Moto America, and so perhaps they they've got better opportunities in in Europe. You're seeing it in Moto Two with Joe Roberts coming across. Um, uh, came across, started racing in the Spanish Championship, and he's now racing in the uh, quite respectably in um, uh, in the Moto Two World Championship. So yeah, I I sort of suspect that there's going to be a few more opportunities for American riders, and Donna would love to have an American. American ride back in uh, back in world
1: superbikes. Yeah, and it's all about having the right American rider. You know, just like it's all about having you know the right rider placed into that right environment, and that's where you know some riders are going to get caught out by this. The likes of Jake Dixon. You know, Jake has come in. He's at the top ten in world superbikes this year. He jumped on a Moto Two bike, was pretty pretty impressive at uh, at Silverstone <laughs> on his Moto Two bike as well. And Jake's twenty one. He's at that age where If he were to make the jump, now's the time to make it because he's got a couple of years to find his feet and just make the transition to be a world championship rider. There's not going to be too much incentive to put him into a world superbike ride, even though he's shown on a superbike what he could do. So maybe for someone like Dixon, it's to join Robertson Moto2. Whatever it is, you know, opportunities may not be presented to a rider of one nationality in one championship, such as a British rider in the uh, superbike championship, but it could be presented to them in... Moto Two or in the Grand Prix championships, so it's all just about trying to figure out where's the right place for these riders. It's easy, I think, for uh, everyone to think that you know the best rider gets the best seat, but it doesn't always work like that. It's more like at the end of the day, we're just after seeing the end of Game of Thrones there, and uh, you know, it's all about trying to place people in the right places to get to the end goal of what you want. The end goal is where we have successful championships in Superbikes and Grand Prix and in you know every other series. But to get to that point, we need to put the riders into the right places.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think in the end you still have, you know, there are probably maybe seven, eight riders in the world who are clearly better than the competition. Uh, But behind that, there's a lot of really, really, really good riders um, from sort of different backgrounds, Can can be... Competitive, Uh, and then you know whether you put them in MotoGP or World Superbikes is less is less a matter of sort of talent and more a matter of um, uh, being the right fit for the series.
1: Yeah, and David, like you're an American football fan, a lot of our reader listeners are Americans as well, and it's it's that question that's always asked when the new season starts: of who's your elite quarterbacks, who's the ones you can win with, who are the ones that aren't up to scratch, and it's the same in in bike racing. You've got there's only you know, a certain amount of Valentino Rossi's, only a certain amount of Tom Brady's, and then it all sort of filters down from that and it's about, as you said, who's elite, who's good enough to get the job done. Yeah, and, and, then- and
0: who fits the scheme, do you know what I mean? It's about who fits a particular, a particular package. You can slot a rider into a particular team and they go, uh, they fit really well, they have a really good uh, sort of feeling and rapport with their crew chief. They've got a good feeling with the team. The bike suits them. Uh, look at um, you know uh, Lorenzo on the Ducati and uh, and Iannone on the Suzuki. Uh, uh, Lorenzo didn't really, the Ducati doesn't really suit Lorenzo's style, but he's managing to adapt himself. You look at Ianoni, the Suzuki doesn't uh, doesn't suit his style, and he's he's absolutely nowhere because he can't adapt himself. So yeah, it, because also because he's just not in the not in the right environment. There, he hasn't got a crew chief. Punch him in the face and tell him to, to 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 calm himself down and concentrate. Right, this is what we're doing. He um, may not so-
1: have a crew chief to punch himself in the face. I think there's a line of people at Suzuki <laughs> to punch him in the face right now. But it's interesting you mentioned that, David, because at that uh, round table with John, he does talk about the importance of working with Power Reba for him, and uh, you know whether or not he'd want to take Power with him in the future wherever he leaves and it's interesting for reba just because if you look at the riders that he's worked with in the past they're all very different there was one the scores an ultra talented rider that they needed to try and really just teach him how to do certain things especially moving from a super sport to a superbike then he worked with laura's bass a rider that was that that didn't didn't have the ment the mentality to be able to be a top line rider at that time and Per reba said that for the first two years he worked with laura's bass They didn't change anything on the bike. They kept the exact same setup one round to the next. And it was just all about Baz just trying to learn, get more from himself, get consistent. And then in the last year, which was the year where he really fell out with Tom Sykes, that was the year where they started to actually approach it like a normal crew chief rider relationship, trying to maximize the bike package. And then obviously working with Johnny Ray, he had a rider that had already shown he could win races in the championship. And it was really at that point then just of trying to maximize what he could get from Johnny. And I think that, that was was quite interesting. And as I said, we can listen to what Johnny had to say just in relation to Pereriba and in relation to a few other details about uh, World SBK now as well.
0: Right. Um, right. Well, that's uh, been a very decent uh, chat. I think we covered a lot of ground there. It was uh, certainly uh, absolutely fascinating. Uh, thank you very much indeed for uh, uh, joining me once again, uh, Steve. Uh, you all are off to sunny Portugal in a couple of days couple of weeks Dave you're off to Mizano in a
1: couple of days I'm very jealous of that um, maybe with Rossi not there you might be able to get down into there's a sushi restaurant in the middle of Rimini that uh, I'm sure Harry would be more than willing to uh, invite you down there for a night we ended up eating there pretty much every night of the Misano <laughs> Superbike round, so I'm a little bit jealous of you getting down to that race now.
0: Right. Well, I should give Harry a slap, tell him to take me to the right place to eat. Generally, in terms of food, um, the Misano round is always my favourite, just because you know Italian seafood. What's not to like? But uh, yes, um, uh, Portuguese seafood also not so bad. So, uh, but uh, you're not a big, you're not really a big seafood fan, are you? You'll be, you'll be on the steaks and spuds.
1: I'm not sure where this reputation came from on me, but I, I'm quite partial to some fish. But you can get nice salmon down there as well and a few different bits and pieces. So I'll be all right down in Mao. I remember I went there for the pre-season test as well and actually ate nothing but fish for the full lay four days i was down there dave so i should be all right this week
0: you could feel your brain growing from eating all of that fish right
1: well a year's worth of brain growing went into that
0: one week really and uh, <laughs> it's it served me well until september anyway right well keep going okay anyway thanks very much steve and i uh, hope to talk to you soon you too dave Thanks for listening to the Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, this show was brought to you by Suzuki and the all-new Suzuki GSX-R1000 Superbike, which has just won the 2017 Moto America Superbike Championship. So join us again next time. Bye. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Paddock Past podcast. My name is David Emmett and with me is, uh for oh, fuck's sake. Steve. <laughs> it's all right, I think I can remember your name. It is Neil, oh no, 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 that one, uh, uh, Adam, uh, uh, Steve, right, Mahindra, 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 and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast.